This is thatsinthebible.com. That's in the Bible, number 82, God or Goo, part two, created or evolved. Troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedoms we all hold dear, powers at stake. Humbling your hearts to God, saves from the chastening rod. Seek the way pilgrims trod, Christians away. Hello, welcome back to That's in the Bible. My name is Eric Sutton. Glad you could join us today for another episode of That's in the Bible. This time we're taking a look at evolution, which we started just a couple episodes ago with, interestingly enough, God or Goo Part 1, a biblical scientific, uh, scientific investigation of our past. That was Part 1, and today we're looking at God or Goo Part 2, Created or Evolved. So the idea here is that we're going to take a look at to see what evolution is all about, what it stands for, what it says, what precepts it, it holds, and to see how it lines up with the Word of God. And to do that with us today, we've got uh, Dr. Joel Brown. That's right. Dr. Joel Brown from lately Cornell University, but now he's moved on. And Dr. Joel, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. It's uh, good to be here. Glad, glad to be back with you. Glad you could come and uh, give us part two. How are things going? Well, uh, things have been pretty busy this last month uh, on many fronts. But the most interesting front, it's been a while since we've done this. <clears throat> but and We missed the entire month of uh, May. This is June... 18th, 2019 to be exact. Yeah, so the entire month of June, basically, up to now, uh, we've been dealing with Mississippi River flooding at the church. Our church is right along the Mississippi River here in St. Louis. And so every year the river floods. But this year it reached the second highest it's ever reached. Wow. And so the last two Sundays, the church has been literally an island. Um, mm. It's built up on a hill, but um, the water got high enough. It completely surrounded the church with just a little um, uh, access from the front. And thankfully, we didn't have to sandbag the church. They've had to do that in the past and when it reached the highest ever. But uh, we were busy sandbagging some of the neighbor's houses, which uh, was a Never done that before. <laughs> that was a new yeah. ministry. <laughs> Didn't have that here in central New York. <laughs> no. Um, so that was that was really unusual. And then we did have, the, there, we have no um, running water at the church right now because we had to turn it all off to prevent the basement from flooding. And we had to, you know, plug up all the sewer lines and everything. So we just uh, cleaned that all up last night. And uh, we should have be back to normal here this weekend. All right. Amen. Well, sounds like you've been busy. It's been a fun sort of busy. Yeah. And also joining us is Pastor Strobel from Lockport, New York. Pastor, how are you today? Doing well. Doing well. Here, listening to Brother Joel, I wanted to ask him, with the situation like that, were you able to have services? So, we don't have any bathrooms. So, we have a Sunday morning service um, while the bathrooms are out. 
Very good. So we do so have, we do. Sorry, go ahead. No, you were able to actually get up there with that access point then. Yeah, yeah. The um, you can, we we made a bridge out of sandbags to be able to walk, uh, into towards the front of the church. Wow. Uh, it the bridge makes it sound more impressive than it actually was. You know, <laughs> just the just the pile of sandbags. But <laughs> so so then we then we all wonder where does everybody park. Yeah, yeah. So the road in front of the church became our parking lot for the last few weeks. Amen. Mm. Praise the Lord. Actually, I should show you pictures of our parking lot from the church because yeah. it looks like um, a lake. I, I, I'm totally serious. We have no parking lot, mm. um, and it just looks like a lake, a, a large, a large lake back there. It's quite beautiful. I mean, if it weren't for the damage <laughs> that's done. Yeah. So uh, I'd love to see those pictures. This is, as you said, this is unusual, right? This is unusual. Well, that's what everyone keeps telling us, but this this is the first year here, and <laughs> as far as we, we know, this is normal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Making sure you get the full experience in your first year. Right, right. Amen. Pastor Strobel, how so, about you? What's yeah. happening there? Well, as you said, it's been a good month and a half, I guess, since we've done this before. Uh, so since that time, uh, the end of May, had the opportunity to preach at uh, family camp in um, on what they call the Southern Tier area of our our uh, state here in New York, Western New York. Um, it's called, camp is called Camp Lalalai. I've had the opportunity to go there for just about every year, other than when I had to miss because of my uh, son's graduating from school, from uh, Bible school, and and preach. And for the last um, good number of years now, been preaching there with uh, Pastor Vince Massa. The camp is hosted at that time by Pastor Vince Giardino from Rochester. And both these men are, are good Bible-believing men. If you happen to be in either of their areas, they'd be good churches to go to. They're straight on the King James. They're straight on their doctrine. And they love the Lord. They love the book. And they um, they serve them and get out the gospel. Um, it's Gospel Light Bible Baptist Church in the Rochester area, and then uh, over its Landmark Baptist Church over in Stamford, uh, Connecticut. So we had good services there, and the Lord also blessed with good weather. Uh, it had been kind of an interesting spring, as you know, between cool weather, even still it has been, but cool weather, rain, and um, we wound up with nice weather, which was a blessing, and whenever it did rain, it rained during our services or while we were eating, pretty much so. It really turned out to be a beautiful weekend. And then um, it's just about a week ago, Saturday, I had already been scheduled to do a wedding, 11 o'clock in the morning wedding. And as it so happened, I wound up uh, also on that day having to do a funeral. So mm. at a wedding, 11 in the morning, and then a funeral at 2 in the afternoon. Mm. And that was a first. Mm. Um, but the Lord blessed, and both of the services uh, went well. Amen. And I make it a point, whether it's a wedding or a funeral, you know, I make it a point to get out the gospel. Amen. And so if they have, people ask me to do their wedding, uh, you know, one of the contingencies is I'm going to be bringing a message. And if they, uh, <clears throat> you know, if it's, if they, so far nobody has canceled because of that, let me just say that. So it's, that's good. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. It's always good to be able to do that because you get a, as you, everybody knows, you get a wide variety of folks that'll come to a yeah. wedding or a funeral. 
Yep. Some of them these days is that's the only time they get to a church or a church type service. And, and obviously there's people there that need the gospel and there was in both cases. Amen. So we just put it out, sow the seed, try to draw the net and give them an opportunity to get saved. Amen. And the Lord knows whether or not anybody does. Yeah. Amen. That's, that's true. And, and two others that usually would join with us most times are uh, Pastor Stephen Bear, who is uh, tonight is at City Mission as we record this, so he wasn't able to be here. And Matt Sutton, who's a missionary up in the Arctic, um, today's his anniversary. So he's not able to join us for good cause. But we're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening. And I know Joel has a lot of information, so I think we're going to get right to it and let you get started, Joel. Sounds good. If you're ready. Let's go for it. All right, here we go. All right, so today we're going to undertake part two of our God or Goo, a biblical and scientific investigation of our past series. So we did part one a couple of of episodes ago. So I highly recommend you go check that out before listening to this one, uh, because they all flow in in succession. Um, Before I begin, though, I'd just like to open up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on this. Lord, we, uh, as we come and address this topic and we look into your word, I pray that you would Help, help me to have the, the right words to say, and um, we, Lord, we want to, you to be honored and glorified in everything we do, um, even in a simple podcast like this. So we just pray that you would uh, <clears throat> see fit to bless this and that it would accomplish what you want it to accomplish. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. In the beginning, God or Goo. So this is a three-part series. Um, the first part was called God or Goo, and if you recall, it was just a an introduction, really, um, where we laid out what we called the um, in-the-beginning God, the biblical worldview, or in-the-beginning Goo, the evolutionary worldview. <clears throat> Today, it, we're taking the second part of that, um, which is created or evolved. So today is going to be the so-called or quote-unquote scientific portion of the series. So uh, that's why I recommend you you definitely look at part one where we really delved into the biblical worldview. Now we're going to be looking at the um, at the science and see how these two worldviews stack up to uh, the science. Uh, and then part three, I'll save that for next time, on purpose or by accident. So let me just review quickly to get us up to speed. We're trying to ask answer the question: Where did I? come from i being you know you me all of us humans and everything around us where did this all come from now this is a question of worldview and and when i use that term worldview i'm just talking about it's a question of faith what do you believe you know no one was around when uh well i should let me rephrase that i was not around when um everything came into existence so uh, i can't possibly know how it all came uh, through my own observations and understanding. And so th- it's a question of what do you, what do you believe? Uh, and there are really two options. There's the biblical worldview, which says, in the beginning, God. And it has two core beliefs. Number one, there is a God. And number two, that the Bible is God's word. So when we, uh, when we take that standard, that the Bible is God's word, when we take that belief, 
then it just so happens when you turn to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, you'll find the words, in the beginning, God. So, based on the Bible, we came from the handiwork of God. Now, I, I thought just for interest's sake, I did not do this last time, um, but it's a really fun exercise to go through um, Genesis chapter 1 and just read the first three verses, or the first three words of most of the verses in Genesis chapter 1. And this is going to reveal who is responsible for creation. Let me do it real quickly. Just All right, so... <clears throat> And God said, and God saw, and God called, and God said, and God made, and God called, and God said, and God called, and God said, and God said, and God made, and God set, and God said, and God created, and God blessed, and God said, and God made, and God said, so God created, and God blessed, and God said, and God saw. So... You really can't read Genesis chapter 1 without coming away from the overwhelming conclusion that where did we come from? Well, we came from God. God made us. God made everything. And it's really that simple. That, that's where I land. Um, so <clears throat> I'll, I'll, I cannot prove to you that this all happened just as the Bible says. I just accept this by faith. Now, similarly, there's <clears throat> the other worldview out there, which is in the beginning goo. And uh, this is the evolutionary worldview. There's really one core belief. Uh, this is a review of last time, so I'm going over it quickly. That core belief of naturalism, the idea that there is no God allowed. However we got here, you're not allowed to explain it by God. Um, now, keep in mind, this is like asking to explain the origin of a painting with no painter allowed. You would indeed have to come up with some pretty creative and outlandish explanations to explain a painter with no paint or with, to explain a painting with no painter allowed and this is what we're going to see today the different outlandish explanations that are put forth to explain our our existence <clears throat> so here we go now when we ask that question where did i come from we're really asking three questions and this is how i'm going to break up the mm, topic for today. How did matter come into existence? So that's the first thing we're asking. You know, you have to start with something. So where did that starting material come from? I'm talking about, you know, the atoms, the molecules, the stuff that everything's made of. So that's the first question. The second question is, how did that non-living matter come to life? So at some point, that lifeless stuff had to come to life. <clears throat> so that's the second part of the question. And then finally, how did complex life forms like humans arise? So being alive is simply not enough. Bacteria are alive, but uh, we're a little more complicated than a bacterium. So, so where did complex life forms come from? These are the three questions that one would have to answer. <clears throat> and well, I've already reviewed and, and reminded us what the biblical worldview says about this. So how does the evolutionary worldview explain these things, and how does that stack up to the science? So there are really three pillars to the evolutionary worldview that are used to explain these, these three questions, or to attempt to. And so the first question, how did matter come into existence? This is uh, 
they try to use something called cosmic evolution to explain this, the origin of the universe. Second question, how did non-living matter become alive? <clears throat> they try to use organic evolution to explain this. And then finally, how did complex life forms like humans arise? They try to use Darwinian evolution to explain this. We're going to look at all three of these today, and our goal today is simple. Our goal is not to prove that creation is true. Our goal is not to prove that evolution is false. My goal is rather simple. It is just to demonstrate that if a person accepts the evolutionary worldview, they're doing it by faith, not by reason, not by intellect, not based on the evidence, but by good, old-fashioned faith. <clears throat> and before I delve into that first pillar of evolution, um, let me start off with this quote, which I gave last time, but I feel like this quote is foundational. It's from an evolutionist, Richard Lewinton, a Harvard biologist, and he says, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. We're going to see some of these today. In spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. We're going to see some of these today. Because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. That really sums it up better than I could say it. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so with that in mind, let's take a look at these three pillars of evolution. Cosmic evolution, the origin of the universe. Organic evolution, the origin of life. And Darwinian evolution, the origin of you. <clears throat> all right, first one, cosmic evolution. So, <clears throat> before talking about the evolutionary aspect of this, I just want to go take you down a an astronomy boot camp. So I would say, you know, this is, uh, let, let's just talk about the universe first. Just, these are, what I'm about to tell you are things that, it doesn't matter if you're a creationist or an evolutionist, um, you know, this is just empirical science that we see around us. I'm going to start off with a little story, a story about a spacecraft called Voyager 1. So in September of 1977, so that's a little while ago now, NASA launched Voyager 1. They shot it up in space. It started flying through space at 40,000 miles per hour, very fast. And it continued to travel away from Earth at 40,000 miles per hour. It is still out there traveling away from Earth at 40,000 miles per hour. It's the furthest man-made object from Earth at this point. <clears throat> However, on February 14th, 1990, so we're talking, let's see, about 13 years after it had been launched. On February 14th, 1990, <clears throat> right before Voyager 1 left our solar system, it turned around and it took a very famous photograph. And if you could see this photograph, you can check it up on the internet or wherever. It's <clears throat> look for the pale blue dot. Because in the middle of this photo photograph is just a big black space. The whole photograph is just big black space. There's, it looks like there's nothing there on first glance. 
Then when you look closely, you can see this tiny blue speck. That tiny blue speck, as you might guess, is planet Earth. And it was taken from a distance of 6 billion kilometers. Uh, that's pretty far. <laughs> Uh, so that's actually, you know, the furthest image of planet Earth that has ever been taken. And it really illustrated uh, an interesting thing about space, about the universe around us. It's big. The universe is huge. Well, just how huge is it? Let's take a quick tour <clears throat> of the universe. Okay, so let's start here at um, our solar system. So our solar system, which we think of as the sun, and then the Eight planets, you know, there used to be nine, then Pluto got demoted, so we'll say eight planets. Um, this is our solar system. Our solar system's pretty big. So uh, just to give some ideas of sizes, let's suppose you took the sun, which is huge, uh, and you shrunk it down to a 10-foot ball, 10-foot wide ball, all right? How big would the planets be and how far away would the, they be? So I'm not going to go through all these for sake of time. But planet Earth, so if the sun was a 10-foot sphere, planet Earth would be about a one-inch tiny ball, and it would be located a 1,000 feet away from that 10-foot sphere. So it would be about the size of one of those, those shooter marbles, you know, the larger marbles and when you play marbles. It would be about that size orbiting around there, um, a thousand feet away. So that gives you an idea of scale. That's pretty small. In fact, our Earth is really just a speck in the vast solar system. Is there anything outside of our solar system? I mean, besides, you know, the sun and the, the planets, is there anything else out there? Well, of course you're thinking, you're thinking, yeah, look up at the night sky. What do you see? you see lots and lots of stars. So these stars are outside of our solar system. And <clears throat> it turns out that our solar system is just a speck in the Milky Way galaxy. So the Milky Way galaxy is um, where we call home. There are an estimated 250 billion stars. That's uh, quite a bit. And <clears throat> when you look up at the night sky, all those stars that you see, those are the stars that are actually in our Milky Way galaxy. And the Earth, our solar system is just a speck inside of the Milky Way galaxy. So using that same illustration, if the sun were a 10-foot sphere, where would the nearest star neighbor be? If, the, if we shrunk the sun down to a 10-foot sphere, where would the nearest star neighbor be? Now this blows my mind. Okay, are you ready? The nearest star would be 55,000 miles away. This is from shrinking it all down. It would still be 55,000 miles away. That nearest star, by the way, is actually a triplet of three stars. It's the Alpha Centauri complex. That is just huge. And that's the nearest star. And our galaxy is just full of stars. <clears throat> now, is there anything beyond this? So our Earth is just a speck in the solar system. Our solar system is just a speck in the Milky Way galaxy. Is that it? What else is out there? <clears throat> well, of course, you know, uh, NASA has wanted to answer this same question on what, <clears throat> what else is out there. And you can use telescopes to do this, but you need a very powerful telescope. So uh, 
NASA launched a very powerful powerful telescope up into space. You're probably familiar with it, called the Hubble Space Telescope. This was launched in 1990. It's about the size of a school bus floating around up there. And, I mean, there are a lot of advantages to having the telescope in space. There's no atmosphere. That's one of the main advantages. There's no atmosphere to distort the images. So you can get really clear images. Uh, and you can also <clears throat> you can get very bright images. Uh, so <clears throat> what they did, they did an interesting experiment. They took the Hubble telescope, you know, it's orbiting around the Earth, and they pointed it at a tiny space in space. That looked like it was empty. So they just pointed the telescope at this tiny space about the size of a grain of sand. And they stared at that space for about 11 and a half days with the Hubble telescope focused on this one point. Now, it looked like there's nothing there. But when you look at it for 11 and a half days, then the telescope is able to collect 11 and a half days worth of light from this one point. So any dim objects that were way out there, it would be able to detect. Okay. And here's what they saw. I, re I wish you could see an image of it, but uh, look it up. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. What they saw in this tiny speck of space, an estimated 10,000 galaxies. You can see, you know, they're spiral galaxies, uh, an estimated 10,000 of them in this tiny speck. Each of these galaxies containing billions of stars. It's just unbelievable. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see this, I'm reminded of Psalm 19.1, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Um, another, another favorite verse of mine, uh, Psalm 8. This is verses 3 and 4. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? That's the truth. When we look out there and see all that God has created, it really shows us, you know, we're just a speck on planet Earth, which is just a speck in our solar system, which is just a speck in our Milky Way galaxy, which is just a speck in our universe. And yet God came to this speck to die for us. I mean, it's amazing. <clears throat> However, let's just, I digress. Let's, um, the question is, what do you do if you're stuck with a worldview that says, no God allowed? Well, you have a lot of explaining to do. So how did all of this stuff get there? It probably doesn't come as a surprise that the way this is explained in the evolutionary worldview is called the Big Bang. All right, we've all heard about the Big Bang. Here's a little description of it from an astronomy book. And it says, The universe exploded out of nothingness about 13 billion years ago. Scientists call this violent <clears throat> beginning the Big Bang. In a single second, the universe grew from being smaller than an atom to being 20,000 light years wide. It is still expanding and may continue to do so forever. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of assertions in there. Like the one, in a single second, the universe grew from being smaller than an atom 
to being 20,000 light years wide. It's amazing how all of this stuff is stated as if, you know, they caught it on video. And it's purely hypothetical. We're talking about something that is unscientific in the sense that it's unobservable. No one, no one's able to observe this. So these are purely hypothetical statements, but they'll always state them as fact. I should mention before I go on, the Big Bang is biblical, sort of. Here's a verse in Second Peter 3.10. <clears throat> it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. You know, I think in the original, original Greek that it was a Big Bang. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So, yeah, here's a pretty big bang here, but it's just a little out of place. This one has not happened yet. It's still to come. So what are the big problems with the Big Bang? What are Really what we're asking is, what are the big problems when you remove God from the picture? So let me just summarize it with these two. Where did all of the matter come from? You know, matter is a scientific term for stuff. Where did all the stuff come from? And then secondly, where did all the order come from? There's an, an immense amount of order out there. I'll, I'll delve into this a little. Um, where did all that order come from? Now, as we go into this, trust your intuition. Because you're going to hear a lot of quotes from PhD scientists making fantastic claims. And just a good thing to keep in mind, silly ideas stated in complex terms by intelligent people are still silly ideas. So, so trust your intuition. Look, if you, if you hear something and you're like, that sounds ridiculous, it probably is ridiculous. <clears throat> um, so here are some examples of that. So where did all the matter come from? Well, according to the Big Bang, it came from nothing. Now, that sounds a little ridiculous to me. It almost sounds like it's made up, like I, I, I'm pulling this out of nowhere. So let me give you some quotes to, to illustrate this. Here's a quote from a textbook, and it says, The observable universe could have evolved from an infinitesimal region. It's then tempting to go one step further and speculate that the entire universe evolved from literally nothing. Another textbook here, and it says, Nothing really means nothing. And from this state of nothingness, the universe began in a gigantic explosion. And then, boy, I like this one. This is from the cover of <clears throat> New Scientist uh, magazine. And it says, the universe burst into something from absolutely nothing, zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. Again, trust your intuition. Silly ideas described by smart people using complex terms are still silly ideas. I like the one person put it this way. <clears throat> you can't tell me everything came from nothing. I know too much about nothing. And you might be saying, yeah, how can you possibly get something from nothing? And purely natural processes. There's even a law about this. Now, in science, a law is simply an observation that has never been broken or that has always held true. An observation that has always held true. So there's a law of the conservation of matter. And this states matter and energy 
cannot be created or destroyed, only changed in form. <clears throat> this is a scientific law, meaning this has never been seen to be broken. All observations have always confirmed this. You know, for example, if you take a if you have a campfire, the campfire you start with wood and then you throw it in the fire and then that wood burns up. The, the wood it looks like it disappears. So what happened to that? Well, matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed, only changes in form. So really what happens when you burn that wood is some of that wood is released as a carbon dioxide. Some of it is left behind as ashes. Some of it is actually released as water vapor. And some of it is released as energy in the form of heat. And every little piece of that wood that you started with is accounted for somewhere in the um, outcome of that fire. Because matter cannot be created or destroyed, only changed in form. So wait a second. I asked for a scientific explanation of the origins of the universe. And in order to give it to us, they have to break one of the fundamental laws of science. Well, <clears throat> how do they get around this? Just ask Stephen Hawking. Now, Stephen Hawking passed away recently. He's a really famous astrophysicist, theoretical physicist. Sometimes they're called theoretical physicists. Um, and he says, quote, at a singularity, like the Big Bang, all the laws of physics would have broken down. Well, now isn't that convenient? <clears throat> Continuing, even the amount of matter in the universe can be different to what it was before the Big Bang, as the law of conservation of matter will break down at the Big Bang. So again, we asked for a natural explanation. To me, it sounds like this is just a secular miracle dressed up in scientific jargon. So where did all that matter come from? There's no good explanation. They're left saying it came from nothing, and they have to violate observable science in order to say that. So the second question, where did all the order come from? You know, it's not just enough to have stuff, but that stuff has to have the right properties in order to exist. We call this the fine-tuned universe. Here's a, another physicist. His name is Paul Davies. He says, quote, There's now broad agreement among physicists and cosmologists that the universe is fine-tuned for life. So what does he mean by this? <clears throat> well, you've heard of Goldilocks. All right. Goldilocks is an example of fine-tuning. Goldilocks wanted... Her porridge, not too hot, not too cold, just right. She wanted a fine-tuned bowl of porridge. A more scientific illustration is perhaps you can think of the Earth. So the Earth is 93 million miles from the sun. If it was much closer, it would be too hot, and life could not exist. If it was much further away, it would be much too cold, and life also could not exist. That's the idea behind fine-tuning. And the, the term comes from, you know, like an orchestra or music, tuning something. So a fine-tuned orchestra. This is when dozens of instruments are all tuned to the same pitch. And that's how they make beautiful music. They don't want to be too sharp or too flat. They have to be tuned just right. So it turns out that our universe is filled with certain properties that have to be tuned just right. Right. In order for us to exist, in order for anything to exist. And what I'm talking about here is the very basic things that make things up, that make life up, make uh, matter up. 
think atoms, protons, electrons. Now, without getting into too much detail, you can when you when I say the word atom, you probably picture you know some vague idea of like this cluster of uh, this this nucleus with uh, a swarm of electrons orbiting around it. This is how we visualize atoms, but of course we can't actually see them. We can describe properties about them and measure things about them, but we, we can't see them. Um, so here are some quotes that really highlight how finely tuned these the properties of these atoms are. The laws of physics begin with a list of elementary particles, like electrons, quarks, and photons, each with special properties such as mass and electric charge. These are the objects that everything else is built out of. No one knows why the list is what it is or why the properties of these particles are exactly what they are. Well, he says no one knows why. I have an idea, but we'll come back to that. This is Leonard Susskind. So, so this is a, another famous um, physicist. Okay, another quote. <clears throat> if This is from Max Tegmark. If the protons were 0.2 percent heavier. They would decay into neutrons, unable to hold on to electrons, so there would be no stable atoms around. If the proton-to-electron mass ratio were, what, were much smaller, there could be no stable stars. And if it were much larger, there could be no ordered structures like crystals and DNA molecules. <clears throat> Here's another famous, modern famous physicist, um, Michio Kaku. He says, it's shocking to find how many of the familiar constants of the universe lie within a very narrow band that makes life possible. If a single one of these accidents were altered, stars would never form. The universe would fly apart. DNA would not exist. Life as we know it would be impossible. Earth would flip over and freeze and so on. And then finally, this is from Stephen Hawking, who we quoted earlier. The law, quote, the laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned, and very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life as we know it. Now, these guys are not Christians or creationists. These are atheists for the most part. So how do they get around this? Here they're saying, you know, our universe is fine-tuned. The properties of atoms are fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life. How can that possibly be the result of an accident? Yeah, that's a really great question, something that they wrestle with. But, you know, uh, faith will find a way. And they find a way. Here's how they get around this. <clears throat> it blows my mind. Are you ready? It's called the multiverse i kid you not the multiverse perhaps you've heard of it again this is purely speculative there is no way to even test but what they're suggesting i'll give you a quote uh so these are not my words um here's a quote it says our most successful theories lead to the inescapable conclusion that our universe is just a speck in a vast sea of universes so what they're saying is that well, our universe is just one universe, and there's a whole sea of universes. Uh, it's In sci-fi, they call this parallel universe. <laughs> in science, they call it multiverse. It's, it's crazy. <clears throat> and, okay, continuing on, here's, here's a um, Berkeley physicist. His name's Raphael Busso. He says, 
quote, the multiverse is not some kind of optional thing, like can you supersize or not? It's there, and we need to deal with it. This article in New Scientist states very plainly the reason for uh, going for believing in the multiverse. It says, one of the main motivations is the need to explain why the physical laws underlying our universe seem so finely tuned as to allow galaxies, stars, planets, complex chemistry, life, and us to exist. Rather than appealing to God or blind luck, some argue that our existence sets parameters that reliably pluck universes like ours from the bottomless grab bag of the multiverse. You know, the Bible describes this sort of mentality this way. It says in Romans chapter 1, 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but what you can see happening here is how desperate people can become when they try to, when they remove God from the equation. And you've got to fill it with something else, and you have to resort to these elaborate, uh, unscientific ideas. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, puts it this way. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's well said. <clears throat> so here's, let's wrap up the cosmic evolution. You're welcome to believe in whatever you want. But I don't have enough faith to believe in cosmic evolution. So where did the universe come from? Where did all the matter come from? Where did all the order come from? Where did the fine-tuning come from? Uh, I'm glad you asked. I have a theory about that. If you turn to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, you will find these words, In the beginning, God created. And it's, it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. That's cosmic evolution. <clears throat> Let me just see how we're doing for time here. <clears throat> I don't think... Uh, okay, let's cruise forward. The second pillar, organic evolution. So we've already shown how when a person removes God from the picture, you cannot provide a reasonable explanation for how the matter got here in the first place. But as you know, that's just the first step. It's not just enough to have lifeless matter. At some point, that stuff must come alive. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about life. Again, just like the astronomy, I want to back up and describe some biology to you. This is, these things that I'm about to say, it doesn't matter what your world view is. They're things that you can go and test in the laboratory today. It's empirical science. And then we're going to see which worldview best explains them. <clears throat> All right. So what makes something alive? Yeah, I mean, what's the difference between, say, a tarantula and a rock? I have a pet tarantula in the room next door. And what makes that alive but the rock outside not alive? You know, living things, they are able to reproduce. They grow and maintain themselves. They extract energy from their surroundings. They sense and respond to their surroundings. But the perhaps the most important feature of all living things that we've ever examined is they all have DNA. D-N-A. So what is DNA? Well, it stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. I know that sounds complicated. So think of it 
forget that big term and just think of it like a paper doll. Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about any paper doll. I'm talking about a paper doll chain. So have you ever made one of those before? They're actually kind of interesting to make. Where you fold up a piece of paper, and then you cut it out. <clears throat> you cut like a little human figure on there. And then you unfold the piece of paper, and you have a chain of paper dolls. Or it could be little men or little girl dolls. Um, that's what DNA is. Except instead of little figures... It's a chain of letters, four letters to be exact, A's, T's, C's, and G's. It's just a combination of these letters. <clears throat> now, if you were to zoom in on DNA and look really, really close, you would not actually see the letter A, the letter T, the letter C, the letter G, etc. These are just abbreviations that we use for the chemicals that are there. <clears throat> so now it's just these DNA is just a string of these four letters repeated in different combinations for a very long time. So these are very long chains. They're millions of letters long. The list of letters of all of the letters that make up our DNA is called our genome. So let me describe a little bit the human genome. The human genome is 3.5 billion letters long. Billion, that's with a B. Um, and these letters, again, this is just, these are strings of DNA, A, T, C's, or G's in any combination. <clears throat> these letters are divided up into what we call genes. So humans have about 20,000 genes. And a gene is nothing more. I know everyone's heard of genes, and they probably conjure up all sorts of crazy images of what they are. A gene is nothing more than a specific region of that chain of DNA. <clears throat> um, so out of these 20,000 genes, um, they are not actually all on a single string of DNA, but they're divided up into 23 different chains of DNA. We call these chains chromosomes. This is in humans. So our genome is divided up into 23 different chromosomes. Each of these chromosomes is a string of DNA that's millions of letters long. Just for comparison, um, think of, I, I want to compare our genome to the English Bible, the King James Bible. So our genome is 3.5 billion letters long. It's divided up into 20,000 genes that are distributed onto 23 chromosomes, which make up one genome. The Bible, by comparison, is 3.5 million letters long. So interestingly, uh, I could never have planned this. Um, interestingly, the Bible is ex almost exactly one thousandth the length of our genome. So in other words, a thousand Bibles stacked on top of each other would be the length of our, our genome. It's 3.5 million letters long, which are divided up into 31,000 verses, which are further divided up into 66 books, and you have one Bible. So our, our genome is organized in a similar fashion. And how big is this? Well, a fast typist who typed 80 words per minute, and that's pretty fast, um, it would take them 16 and a half years to copy the human genome. A cell inside your body can do this in about eight hours, make a copy of all 3.5 billion letters. 
So where is all this DNA? Well, it's all over your body. So your skin cells, your heart cells, your brain cells, your stomach cells, you, you name it cells, they all have a copy of your genome, all 3.5 billion letters of it. And it's all squished into what's called the nucleus of the cell. <clears throat> and that nucleus is about six millionths of a meter across. I mean, I'm throwing a lot of numbers out there, but the take-home message here is the genome is huge, and it's all packed into a tiny space inside of a cell. Uh, it's incredible the way this is all organized. All of the DNA, so if you took all the DNA from all of the cells in the body, all of the DNA in the human body together would stretch 30 billion miles if you strung it end to end. That would be to the sun and back 160 times just your DNA from one, one human. It's impressive. So what in the world is all of this DNA doing? Are you ready for this? DNA doesn't do anything. That's right. DNA doesn't do anything. DNA is a code. So it's a set of instructions. Think of it like a computer code. So <clears throat> right now I'm sitting in front of my computer. Uh, <clears throat> if I were to type my name on the computer, J-O-E-L. It doesn't see J-O-E-L. It just sees a bunch of zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. <clears throat> There's nothing special about the code. It's the order of the code that makes it special. So the code doesn't actually do anything. It just instructs the hardware to do certain things. DNA is the same way. Think of DNA like the software, and it contains the instructions to make something. So what does that code make? Well, it makes proteins. DNA makes proteins. <clears throat> so DNA or genes, I'll kind of use those two terms interchangeably. Gene X makes protein X. Gene Y makes protein Y. Gene Z makes protein Z. And so on and so forth. Now when you hear protein, you might think, oh yeah, okay, that's the stuff that you drink in your shake so you can look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. Uh, that's not exactly right. Uh, proteins are just tiny mo molecular machines that do everything in our body. So some proteins digest food, some proteins transport oxygen, some proteins build muscles. And so there, you do need a lot of protein if you want to build muscles. That's where that connection comes from. Um, <clears throat> so just let me reiterate. Genes... DNA contain instructions to make proteins. Gene X makes protein X, gene Y makes protein Y, etc. Let me give you a, a real life example of this. So inside of your body right now, as you're listening to this, <clears throat> there is a gene called the hemoglobin beta gene. It makes the hemoglobin beta protein. Now in the age that we live in, which is both fascinating and scary, um, I, I kind of err on the side of fascinating for the time being. Uh, the genetics age, genomics age that we live in, we, we actually know what the sequence is of all of the genes in our body. So the hemoglobin beta gene. I can read you the list of, of letters that make it up. It'd be really boring. It starts with A, T, G, G, T, G, C, A, T, C, T, G, A, C, T, C, C, and so on. It's about 432 letters long. And this gene makes a protein. Um, proteins are made 
of a different library of letters or a different alphabet of letters called amino acids. Um, so again, here's the sequence for the hemoglobin beta protein. M-V-H-L-T-P-E-E-K-S-A-V-T, blah, 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 blah. And it goes on like that. So the hemoglobin gene makes the hemoglobin protein. This concept is the foundation of all life. It's the foundation of biology. Multiply this by 20,000, 20,000 genes, and you have you, in a sense. Your genes and your proteins, <clears throat> they make you, physically speaking, who you are. You know, they determine your hair color. They determine if you have hair. They determine your weight. Well, they, there's other things that determine your weight, as I'm sure you can guess. Uh, they determine things like your height, your eye color. Um, they can influence things like your tasting ability. Uh, so they, the genes and proteins determine all your physical features. Now, this is an amazing amount of information. And I don't know about you, but when I look at all this complexity, when I look at this information, I think of Psalm 139.14. This is the verse that says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Now, if you're stuck with a worldview that says, no God allowed, then you have a lot of explaining to do. So how does the evolutionary worldview, the goo worldview, seek to explain this? This is where organic com evolution comes in. This is the second pillar. We're going to take a look at it scientifically. And, and quite frankly, I'll just summarize to show <laughs> that this is another one of those questions that is outside of the realms of science. Um, you hear lots of claims of people's, I'll read some. Here's a quote says, uh, life on Earth first bloomed around 3.7 billion years ago when chemical compounds in a primordial soup somehow sparked into life, scientists suspect. Here's another quote from a textbook. <clears throat> the first living cells emerged between 4 billion and 3.8 billion years ago. There is no record of the event. Now, the same textbook just said, you know, there's no record of this event. Same textbook, the first self-replicating systems must have emerged in this organic soup. And you can see the, the worldview just oozing out of this. They can't think of any other possibility. This stuff must have emerged, therefore it did. So this is what we mean by organic evolution. Sometimes that word organic is perhaps a bit confusing. It doesn't mean that the first life forms didn't use deodorant or something like that. In science, the term organic is just a fancy way of referring to life. So <clears throat> that's why we call it organic evolution. Now, um, it's sometimes also called spontaneous generation. And this idea of spontaneous generation is actually nothing new. In the Dark Ages, people believed that life could spontaneously arise from non-life. Rats, for instance, were thought to spontaneously form in piles of trash. Maggots were thought to spontaneously form on rotting meat, and so on. Um, now, that that's understandable. That was a few hundred years ago when people thought life was relatively simple. Now we know quite the opposite. Life is incredibly complex. Now we have another law of science. So when I say law again, 
I'm referring to, this is an observation that has never been observed to be false. It has always been observed to be true. This is the highest level of science. It's called the law of biogenesis, and it means what it sounds like. It means that life comes from life. Life can only come from life. So that means <clears throat> rats only come from rats. Flies only come from flies. And yes, humans only come from humans. So on and so forth. <clears throat> so we call this the law of biogenesis. Now you can immediately see that the idea of organic evolution is completely contrary to this. It's saying that non-living material somehow came to life. <clears throat> and so you, you have to break what we have only ever observed in science. You have to break that in order to believe in this idea of spontaneous generation. So you must think, okay, so what, what's the evidence for this? If they're going to insist that we break this scientific law, what's the evidence for it? One of the common evidences that you'll hear them bring up is this um, experiment called the Miller-Urey experiment. And you see this in basically every textbook. Um, there's always some illustrations showing these flasks and some a spark and some water boiling. And what they're illustrating here is a, an experiment that was performed back in the 1950s. And what they did in this experiment, they're trying to um, build a case that you can create life from non-life in a laboratory. So they put these chemicals inside of this, these flasks, and then they heated them up, they boiled the water, and then they zapped that, um, that atmosphere inside of these, these test tubes. And they collected the residue that formed. And what they found was that they were able to make amino acids. Now, I only mentioned this briefly before, but amino acids are the letters that make up proteins. So what their the whole argument for this origin of life comes from this experiment and experiments like this, which are able to make the letters that make up DNA and that make up proteins. Now, the typical creationist response to, to an experiment like this is they, they point out, well, you know, it's an artificial lab experiment. It, it, it doesn't actually represent what could occur in nature uh, this is all true, but when I see an experiment like this, I say, who cares? I mean, th this is absolutely meaningless in, it, in terms of how, where did life come from. There's nothing special about letters. They are just chemicals. It's the order of the letters that give it information and that enable life. You can open a can of alphabet soup, and you will get a bowl full of letters, but you won't ever pour the Oxford English Dictionary out of a can of alphabet soup. Or, <clears throat> to give you a slightly more grotesque example, <laughs> suppose you took a frog. I don't, I don't recommend you do this, but just hypothetically speaking here. Suppose you took a frog and you stuck it in a blender, and then you cranked that blender up to full power for about 30 seconds. You would get frog soup. Now, what's the difference between the frog right now and the frog... 30 seconds ago. We still have all of the same material, all of the same chemicals, but one of them's not hopping. So 
life is not just a bowl of chemicals. Those chemicals have to be arranged in the correct order. This order is called information, and this is what makes life life. And this information is the problem with spontaneous generation. DNA is not random. It is a specific order, and it must be a specific order in order for um, life to exist. So let me, I'm going to go a little deep here, Um, but I think this is a, I think this just illustrates how far-fetched this idea is that life could have spontaneously formed. So let's, let's see what the possibility is, the probability of forming just one protein by chance. Now, before we do this, I want to um, tell you about an experiment that was published recently in Science, which is a, a very well-known journal. And this, what they did in this experiment is they wanted to find out what is the simplest, quote-unquote, simplest form of life. So let me walk you through it. <clears throat> there are several... It's going to be something like a bacteria. The bacteria are simpler than us. I mean, and people sometimes shy away from that word simple because they are not simple. That's true. They are not simple. But they are simpler than, than us. And so they, they were trying to identify the simplest form of life. So, for instance, the E. coli bacteria, the stuff that might be in your jack-in-the-box hamburger, the E. coli bacteria is five, it has five million letters of DNA in, in its genetic code, in its genome. And it has 5,416 genes. The Helicobacter pylori bacteria, they have 1.6 million letters in their DNA. So that's smaller. So it's a little simpler. It has 1,589 genes. Okay, so that's a little simpler than the E. coli. Well, <clears throat> there's another bacteria out there, the Mycoplasma mycoides. This has a genome that's about thou- or, sorry, a million letters long, and it has 901 genes. That's pretty simple. This is one of the smallest genomes of any living organism from this Mycoplasma mycoides. Well, these scientists, um, for reasons which we won't go into here, they wanted to see, they wanted to create what's called a minimal bacterial genome. So they wanted to eliminate as much of this genome from the mycoplasma <clears throat> mycoides that, as they could and see if it would still survive. So they want to see what's the minimum set of genes a bacteria needs in order to be alive. Here's a quote from the paper. We set out to define a minimal cellular genome experimentally by designing and building one, then testing it for viability. I know that sounds crazy and pretty complicated. It is complicated, but it's it's totally doable. And in fact, you could almost do this in your garage if you had the right equipment. Uh, some parts of it are really technical, but otherwise a lot of it could be done in your garage. Our goal, this is their paper, our goal is to is a cell so simple that we can determine the molecular and biological function of every gene. <clears throat> this is kind of like saying, what's the minimal set of tools a mechanic needs in order to be a mechanic. So, for instance, you walk into a mechanic's garage and there are just tons and tons of tools. Now, a lot of those tools are just 
special tools that make a job easier, but they're not absolutely required in order to be a mechanic. So, for instance, you could throw out the impact wrench. The mechanic would still be a mechanic. He could still work on cars, take him a little bit longer, but he'd be able to do it. He'd just pull out his ratchet set. Okay, so you throw out his ratchet set. Well, the mechanic could still be a mechanic. He could still work on cars. It would just take him a little bit longer. But he still has his good old-fashioned wrench set. Now, if you throw out his wrench set, well, he can't work on cars anymore. He's not a mechanic anymore. So that's what these scientists did to this poor little bacterium. They started chopping away pieces of its genome. It started out at a million letters and 901 genes, and they wanted to see how many could they get rid of without killing it. And this is what they ended up with. This is the smallest, now the smallest genome of any living thing. And it's called the Mycoplasma Laboratorium. This genome for this bacteria is 531,000 letters long, and it consists of 473 genes. So here's where I'm going with all this. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things about this. Uh, I'd love to talk more about, but we'll save that for later. So here's where I'm going with all this. <clears throat> what they showed, and, and they, they don't comment on this, but what they show outright is in order for something to be alive, it has to have at least 473 genes. I mean, we're talking the bare minimum that something needs in order to be alive. 473 genes. So what's the chance that all 473 genes and the proteins that they make could randomly assemble in some organic goo? Well, that's a little bit difficult to calculate, so I'm going to make it a little easier on everyone. Let's just calculate the probability of the smallest one of these proteins that were in this, this um, bacteria that they generated. The smallest protein was 37 amino acids long. That's the smallest one. So what's the probability of making this smallest protein by chance? This is a simple math problem. There are 20 amino acids. The first one has to be an M, the second one has to be a K, the third one has to be a V, and so on and so forth. And so <clears throat> you just do the math, and the chance of this one protein, the smallest protein, assembling by chance is one chance in one, three, seven, zero, 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 zero. So that in scientific notation is one point three seven times ten to the forty eighth power. Now we this is like winning the lottery six times in a row with one ticket. So that one ticket winning the lottery six times in a row. We actually have a word for this. It's called impossible. Impossible. And that's just the smallest protein. You still have 472 proteins to go before you can have this hypothetical simplest form of life. Are you beginning to see why this is so impossible. 
So this is why a lot of people have resorted to, again, elaborate explanations when I say a lot of people. Um, the the atheist, uh, the evolutionary worldview crowd, um, they have to complicate it. So a lot of them have moved it off off world. They've moved the formation of life off world. So it's here's a quote from Fred Hoyle, an atheist, mind you. He says, the chance that higher life forms might have emerged in this way, the, by chance in organic soup, <clears throat> the chance that the higher life forms might have emerged in this way is comparable to the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Well, that's a very useful analogy. That's why Fred Hoyle believes that life came from outer space. Here's another biophysicist. <clears throat> she says, soup alone is too unorganized. So I'm coming up with a soup and sandwich hypothesis. <laughs> so if we keep this up, we're going to have a whole buffet before long. Uh, but you see, there's just no end. There, faith will find a way. I mean, these people are accepting this, that life arose from non-life by faith. And so faith will always find a way. Here's a quote uh, again from Fred Hoyle. If one proceeds directly and straightforwardly in this matter without being deflected by a fear of incurring the wrath of scientific opinion, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure of order must be the outcome of intelligent design. Again, let me remind you, I completely agree with that statement. He believes that it came from outer space, so some other um, alien-type life form put us here. Um, and then let me just finish off this section with one final quote. Uh, I think it's just really sums it up. This is from David Green, Robert Goldberger, again, two evolutionists, two cell biologists. And here's what they say. Quote, the, macro, <clears throat> the macromolecule to cell transition, which is what we've been talking about, is a jump of fantastic dimensions, which lies beyond the range of testable hypothesis. In this area, all is conjecture. The available facts do not provide a basis for postulating that cells arose on this planet. This is not to say that some paraphysical forces were at work. We simply wish to point out the fact that there is no scientific evidence. So I can, I can respect somebody who, who is honest like that, you know, I think the reason they were so honest is this was an old quote. It came from the 1960s. Nowadays, this issue has become so polarized that you'll never hear a scientist um, state that. But it, this is exactly what we have been saying from, from part one. This um, is outside the realm of testable science. So what's the conclusion here? Let's sum up organic evolution. You know, you're welcome to believe whatever you like. But I don't have enough faith to believe in organic evolution. So where did life come from? Where did all of this information come from? I have a theory about that. <clears throat> if you turn to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, you will find these words. In the beginning, God created it's no more complicated than that. <laughs> um, now, Eric, let me throw this back to you. 
<clears throat> we've hit two pillars. We've mm-hmm. hit the cosmic evolution. We've hit organic evolution. Yep. We have we have Darwinian evolution. Um, I'm looking at the time here, and I'm seeing we're you know about at an hour mm-hmm. already. Um, what do you want me to do? Should we uh, wrap this up now and tack this on to the beginning of the next one, or uh, finish it up? I think we could finish it up. I mean, if you're if you want to stop, we can do that. We can, uh, can, but I think I think we talked about this before the show began that everybody has a pause button. So <laughs> our listeners that are listening, they don't have to spend an hour and a half, you know, listening to this all in one go. They certainly can, but they don't have to. And I know that when I listen to podcasts, the same thing, you know, I'll get so far, I'll pause it and I'll come back to it. So whatever format works for you is going to work for us and the listener, whether it's in this episode or we tack it on to another one. Either way. Okay, then, then I'm just going to finish this out. Sounds so we good. Can just have it all lumped together. Um, <clears throat> all right, so I'll, I'll finish off this third pillar of evolution called Darwinian evolution. So let's have a quick look at that. I'm, <laughs> now, this is, this is the part of evolution that you typically think of when you hear evolution. So when you hear Darwinian evolution, this is the, you know, there's goo, and then that goo evolves into a life, and then that life transitions into some swimming creature, which crawls out onto land and forms into everything, including apes and eventually humans. So this is classical evolution that we're talking about. Uh, now, we've already shown that when you re- when a person removes God from the picture, you cannot provide a reasonable explanation for how stuff got here in the first place. And if you remove God from the picture, you also can't provide a reasonable explanation for how that stuff came to life. But even if all of this were possible... It's not just enough to have some simple primordial cell. Somehow that cell has to become you. And of course not just you, but it has to become hummingbirds and tarantulas and killer whales and garden snails and frogs and dogs and koala bears. And so all of this stuff. So this third pillar of the theory of evolution is what attempts to explain this, and we're all pretty familiar with the idea of Darwinian evolution. So, if you recall, um, well, let let me first just give some some of the typical quotes or things that you run into. So, here you open a a magazine. This is Discover Magazine 2004. And you see these big, bold letters that says, this is your ancestor. And there's a giant arrow pointing at a sea sponge. Sea sponge. Or you open a high school biology textbook. This is a quote, and it says, quote, You are an animal and share a common heritage with earthworms. Or you open your newspaper. This is a newspaper clipping my, uh, my mom sent me. I don't know why. Uh, so it says, <clears throat> quote, Before we were apes, we were rats. And then the headline is, our ancestors were rats, fossils indicate. So what you're seeing here is Darwinian evolution. The idea that we and everything else evolved from these primitive life forms that gradually got more complex. <clears throat> so what I want to focus on in this section, the problem with, with the Darwinian evolution is the same problem that, was, that we had with, with how did life begin in the first place. 
uh, it's just magnified. Because now we're saying, not only do you need a cell, but there's a little bit more information in humans than there is in a simple little bacterium. So where did all of that information come from? Keyword for all you out there. Um, the keyword is information. There's information in that in a simple cell. And there's more information in a blue whale. And so where did all of that additional information come from? The problem is the same that we just talked about with organic evolution. And I'm not going to belabor that too much further. But the, the main thing I wanted to touch on here is um, if you recall back in part one, I said that part of evolution is actually true. And I, I really mean that. Part of evolution is true. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. And if you understand this, this is the key to understanding this whole discussion and being able to, to discuss it with people and challenge them a little bit. It's defining what we mean by that word evolution. So, so what does the word evolution mean? Hopefully you're thinking it means something like change over time. That's right. At its very core, the word evolution just means change over time. So let me ask you, do things change over time? Yes. Okay. I'm glad we've got that out of the way. Things change over time. No one argues about this. For instance, boxers. I grew up with, our family had boxers. Um, the dog, not, not like Mike Tyson. Um, so we had the dog breed boxers. Now, if you went back 200 years ago, you would not find boxers. Boxers, as a breed, did not exist 200 years ago. The official boxer breed was started in Munich, Germany in 1896. So where did boxers come from? Well, they came from other dogs. If you go back 2,000 years ago, you would find almost none of the current breeds of dogs running around. You wouldn't find Chihuahuas and Great Danes running around 2,000 years ago. So where did all of the dog breeds come from? Well, you know, it's common knowledge. You take a couple of wolves, and given enough time and enough patience, you could breed and eventually select all of the different dog breeds that we see today. So all of our dog breeds that we have in our houses it came from wild wolves. Now, what would you call this? This is change, obviously. I mean, the boxer looks different from a wild wolf, so there's change here. What would you call this change? Here is the National Geographic, and um, there's an article called Wolf to Wolf. So you see that play on words. Wolf to wolf. And the subtitle is The Evolution of Dogs. So here, you see what they've done? They've called this change, which is a small change. They've called it evolution. So now, I don't call it evolution. I would call this um, selection. Or I, would, I would call this um, adaptation or selective breeding in the case of the wolves, the dogs. Um, but they call this evolution. So this is one of the most confusing things about this entire field. When somebody says, oh man, we see evolution 
all around us. We observe it all the time in nature. They're talking about little change. So you have to keep in mind there are two types of change. There's big change. That's like from goo to you. And then there's little change, like the dogs here. So with that in mind, let's talk about evolution and Charles Darwin and, and what he came up with, what he t- proposed. So Charles Darwin in The Origin of... He published the famous book, The Origin of Species. So that was in 1859 that he published that book. But prior to that, in 1831, <clears throat> he went on a voyage on the HMS Beagle. He was the naturalist on board. He was only 22 years old at the time. Um, and so the HMS Beagle traveled around the world, including stopping at the Galapagos Islands. And Charles Darwin made lots and lots of observations. <clears throat> and then he made a lot of other observations when he was at his home in England. He eventually uh, put these together in, in his book, The Origin of Species. Most of it, or a large portion of the book, I should say, is just... Um, good observations about the different varieties of pigeons that pigeon breeders have and the different varieties of finches that were on the Galapagos Island. It's just good observation. And then he took it and he drew a leap of faith, which is what we're going to see. So Let's talk about that just a bit. The origin, the book, the origin of species. Now, the title here sums it up pretty good. Darwin was writing about how different species species came about but what is a species again this is one of those confusing terms in this whole discussion of creation evolution i i just recommend you try to avoid it and just ask people to uh to express or to tell you what they're talking about but uh, let's get into it with the species so scientists like to group things that's basically the job of scientists is to group and describe things and so we group animals into these groupings with long scientific um, Latin names. Uh, let's take, for example, the horse. The horse, the common horse that you see in the cowboy shows, um, the horse is grouped into the largest grouping is domain Eukarya. And then it goes kingdom Animalia, then phylum Chordata, then class Mammalia, then order Parasodactyla, then family Equity, then genus Equius, and species ferris. That is our common horse, and I'll be quizzing you on that afterwards. So this is from largest to smallest, the way that they group horse. It starts with the, what's called the domain at the top, and then species is uh, the actual species of horse. So there are actually seven different horse species. There's the horse that you're familiar with, Equius ferris. And then there are three species of um, wild donkeys, And there are three species of zebras. So let's just ask this question. Where did these different, where did these seven species come from? Did God create seven different species when he created horses? Or did he create one horse, which then had the variability within it to be able to um, generate these different species? Uh, That's an interesting question, and I think a, a valid one. If we... Go back to the book of Genesis. You'll find a terminology that God uses here in the Bible. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly, after their kind. 
and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Hop down a few verses, Genesis, or verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind. Uh, one more verse down. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. All right, so you see basically a glimpse here into the how God created things. He created a kind of animal. And those animals reproduced after their kind. So <clears throat> I like to think of it like this. Um, of course, the Bible doesn't use the word species. It uses this, this word kind. So God created kinds of animals. Did you know that, oh, well, everyone basically knows you can cross a horse and a donkey together. And you get a mule. But you can also cross a zebra and a horse. And you get a zorse. You can cross a zebra and a donkey. And you get a zonkey. A bunch of other crazy names. Uh, and it depends, you know, whether it's a male horse or a female donkey, etc. You, you can go all which ways with these. So these um, animals, these species, are able to interbreed. So when I see that, I'd say these are probably part of the same kind. Which means God created a horse kind and within that horse kind he gave it the ability to adapt to its environment and you get um nowadays we have donkeys and zebras and horses similarly you can look at the the cat kind so you got lions and tigers did you know that you can cross a male lion with a female tiger and you get a liger it sounds like I made that up, but that's actually true. You get a liger. <clears throat> and so, again, when I see that these, these animals are able to reproduce, I think they were probably part of the same created kind. Now, how do you tell what were the created kinds? We don't know. I mean, it's interesting to to speculate and to discuss it. But in general, just trust your intuition. I mean, you can ask any five-year-old. I have here a dog a wolf, and a coyote, and a banana. Which one is not like the others? You know, so just use your intuition. I think um, uh, it's pretty obvious when you um, look at the world around us that certain things were all came from this original created kind. But this is all little change. So this type of change is exactly what Darwin saw when he traveled around the world. Remember, he goes to the Galapagos Islands, and on those Galapagos Islands, he found 14 species of finches. And they had different beak sizes, and he said, you know what? I bet all of these species of finches came from an original finch. This is little change. Here's another quote from The Origin of Species. Darwin says, in regard to ducks and rabbits... I do not doubt that they are all that they all have descended from the common wild duck and rabbit. Neither do I. You know, that's little change. And this type of change is the change that we can observe in the world around us. <clears throat> now here's where the leap of faith comes. Okay, so you ready for this? This is in the origin of species. Darwin then takes it to this next step. Therefore, I should infer from analogy that probably all 
the organic beings which have ever lived on this earth have descended from some one primordial form. Now that is big change. And keep in mind, Darwin's writing back when he did not know about DNA. He didn't know about all the additional information that needed to be included. So keep these two types of change separate, and it will immensely simplify um, this, this discussion. There's little change, which is just variation within a kind. And then there's big change, which is this idea of common descent, that everything came from some primordial life form. There's little change, which is like the wolves to dogs. There's big change, which is bacteria to blue whales. There's a little change, which is scientific and observable. We see things adapting to their environments. This is something God created them with the ability to do. Uh, Then there's big change. This is unscientific. We've never seen a new kind of animal turn into a a different kind of animal. So that's why when someone says, do you believe in evolution? I always ask, what do you mean by evolution? And again, if you, that's the key to really discussing this. Otherwise, people just end up talking around each other the whole time. <clears throat> so let me then go back to the original problem. So what are the big problems with the big change that Darwinian evolution requires? So this is a huge topic. You know, volumes and volumes have been written on these different things. There's ape men, you know, what about the ape men? What about missing links? Uh, the fossil record, vestigial organs, um, homologous structures. Each one of these could be a different topic. But I'm, I want to give you the, the core problem. The core problem all boils down to information. This is, again, the same problem that we had back in organic ev- um, evolution. So what's the difference between a bacteria and a blue well? It's information. Specifically, I'm talking about the DNA. The DNA is different. There's a whole bunch of extra information in the blue whale that had to come from somewhere. What's the difference between goo and you? It's information. You're chock full of information that had to come from somewhere. So each New now, I should throw in here, and this is this is important to mention. We share some of the same information. So, for instance, the bread, the the yeast that you put in your bread machine when you make a loaf of bread, it has DNA in it. It's, it's a living organism. That's why it makes the bread rise. Um, so it has DNA in it. You actually have some of the same genes that that yeast has. Now, I think this is incredibly important that God created things this way because that way we can study the yeast, which is easy to study, to learn about how our body functions. So we share some of the same genes. This is to be expected, and there's no problem with that. Uh, But then the big problem is how do you go from something like a simple bacteria, which is called a prokaryote, to something like, which is called a eukaryote. Uh, these are different classifications of cells. Uh, a yeast, for example, is a eukaryotic cell. Bacteria are prokaryotic cells. <clears throat> and the difference, they have completely different set of proteins that are required to copy their DNA and to make the proteins. Uh, 
and there's no shared proteins between them. So this is a gigantic jump in information. There's no way that Darwinian evolution can explain that. How do you go from, say, an egg-laying organism to an organism that gives birth to live young? There's an incredible amount of information, new information that's required to give birth to live young, such as formation of a placenta, the umbilical cord, the whole interaction between in the placenta between the the mom's blood and the um, child's blood. Uh, these are big problems. It's a lot of information that you have to come from. How do you go? How do you get feathers? I mean, this is something that birds have this unique. Uh, bone structure, they have the hollow, lightweight bones, and they have these unique feathers. How do you get feathers? That's new information. And then there's all these complex structures that we see. I mean, you, you've seen these in throughout your own life. There's hummingbird flight. I mean, you ever seen one of these hummingbirds fly? They can fly up, down, forward, backwards, upside down. They can fly all over the place. Um, and, and they use a unique beat pattern, unique wing structure in order to be able to fly like this. Where does that information come from? There's bat echolocation. Bats use sounds to be able to spot their prey. Uh, Blood clotting. There are all the factors that are required for blood clotting. The eye. Just think of everything that's required for you to see what you're seeing right now. Um, the the lens, the iris, the muscles that control all these and focus them. All of these pieces had to be there together. <clears throat> photosynthesis. I mean, here's it. Uh, photosynthesis, which is, as you know, the process of plants that they use to take sunlight and generate food. Photosynthesis requires its own set of proteins in order to accomplish that. Where does all of this come from? I'm going to just give you one example of this. This is called the bacterial flagellum. So I like this example because it's relatively simple and still complex at the same time. So tiny bacteria, bacteria that are so small that you cannot see them with the naked eye, they have these motors on them. These motors are called the bacterial flagellum. And so these motors can spin up to 100,000 RPM. And a fast bacterium can swim up to 50 times its body length in one second. I mean, so that's how fast these, these motors propel them. Um, some scientists actually believe that these motors are the most efficient machines known. So if you could, we can actually see these with extremely powerful microscopes, electron microscopes. You can see these motors. And you can see the structure of them. They have, uh, let's go kind of from inside to outside. They have a rotor on the inside. They have a drive shaft. They have a bushing. They have this U-joint, which connects to a propeller on the outside. And all of this spins around just like your electric motor that you might have, um, even just like uh, some engines and cars. I mean, this is incredibly complex. And it requires nearly 40 proteins to build a functional flagellum. 40 proteins. So if you were to take, if you were to remove just one of these proteins, that flagellum cannot operate. It would cease to operate. So think about what that means. In order for this 
amazing machine, the bacterial flagellum, to evolve. All 40 proteins had to be present at the same time to build this flagellum. <clears throat> there is no way that Darwinian evolution can explain the origination of all of that information instantaneous like that. Um, Darwin himself made this statement. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, like the flagellum, my theory would absolutely break down. And he, he recognized this, and of course, now we have the technology to be able to study the complexity of the cell. So let's wrap this up with organic evolution or the um, Darwinian evolution. You're welcome to believe whatever you like. I don't have enough faith to believe in Darwinian evolution. So where did all of this extra information come from? Where did frogs and dogs and trees and bees and birds and bugs? Where did all of this information come from? Well, I have a theory about that. If you turn to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, you will find these words, in the beginning, God created. And it's no more complicated than that. I think it's fitting to um, throw in one more verse in Genesis 1, where it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And when we have been created by a God versus evolved by chance, it changes our outlook on life. And this is what we're going to be looking at next time, which is part three, on purpose or by accident. Psalm 95, three through six, for the Lord is a great God and a king, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Back to you, Eric. Well, thank you, Joel. Good job. That was uh, you know, I was struck as we listened to all the, the, those three areas, the cosmic evolution, organic evolution, and Darwinian evolution. I mean, you didn't really have to present a case for creation. It, all of that stuff was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, that out of nothing comes all this matter and information. It's, it's weird. It, would you say that there's matter and order and fine-tuning in all three of those areas? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's actually a good way to sum it up. You could see that a couple terms came up a lot, which you mentioned, order, and that term information. And really, what is information? It's order. So, so absolutely, yeah. All I, that's that is the really the crux of the creationist argument is that order only comes from a designer. And I like. I thought it was interesting that when. The, the for them to explain, you know, their their ideas on evolution, they had to break laws, you know, that that typically they would say can't be broken. 
you know, to, well, somehow this happened. So we have to, we have to do away with these laws that are, that are here rather than, you know, even hold out hope that there might've been a creator. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. And you yeah. know, the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking is that, you know, what came first, the heart or the blood? You know, the, the heart muscle was created first or did the, you know, how, and how does that organism survive without both of them created at the same time? So there's another, I had to cut this example out um, for sake of time, but there's numerous examples of what you're describing in biology. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite ones, which I would encourage people to look into if they're interested in, is these things called ribosomes. Ribosomes are protein factories. So they make proteins, but they are made of proteins. So you need a ribosome to make the proteins that make the ribosome. <laughs> the, the only way to have something like that is if it all was instantaneously present oh. so your background your your degree is in is it genetics i think we determined that's right yep yep so as you're studying this as you're going to school and studying all this were you ever like was i mean how hard was it to i'm, I'm assuming that the professors ha, are coming the majority of them are coming from the you know, the atheist viewpoint, the, that world model, that worldview. How hard is it for you to kind of sit there and like, ah, oh, to listen to that? Well, so, uh, for example, I took, this was years ago now, but I took biochemistry class. And in biochemistry, which is about chemistry, as you know, it sounds like, um, the very first class period, the, the professor started off talking about where did all of the chemicals and the elements in the periodic table come from. And he talks about the Big Bang. And so um, I raised my hand and asked him, you know, is this speculation or um, how have they demonstrated this? (laughs) And his his response was, well, it's pretty well agreed upon. Mm. And this is, so I ended up... um, printing out an article talking about scientists who criticized the Big Bang, and I, I gave it to him with a, a respectful note and left it at that. Um, and you didn't and, fail the class. No, uh, but that's really important to do well in the class if you, <laughs> if you come out and uh, say something like that. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, and, and that, he, that also illustrates the, the main rationale behind believing this stuff is that well you know all these smart people describe it in really complex terms so it must be true yeah i like your quote there silly ideas stated in complex terms by smart people are still silly ideas that was good that's just trouble yes uh, a lot of stuff and a lot of good stuff i appreciate uh the quote Joel mentioned it wasn't that he wasn't quoting somebody, but it's a statement that he made, and it went something like this. He was uh, talking about how when the evolutionists do their theorizing, and he said something to the effect: "Notice that a lot of this is spoken about as if they caught it on video." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, 
it is so true. That is the way that they do it. They they take their theory and just proclaim it as fact, even though their theory, if I could use a term, evolves over time. <laughs> it continues to change. And every time they change, you're supposed to just bow down at their intellectualism and believe it and accept mm-hmm. it, even though that's different than what they said before. But that's all they can really do, as he said, just theorize, uh, conjecture, and then they're pontificating on, on all their theories as if they're facts. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard Darwinian evolution simplified in a short poem. goes like this. Once I was a tadpole, small and thin. Then I was a froggy with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree. Now I'm a professor with a PhD. <laughs> and that's, that's very simple and essentially what they believe. Mm-hmm. Something I've noticed, I recently mentioned to our church and uh, one of our studies, I think I was, uh, one of the Bible studies I think I was doing or a message somewhere. But um, I, I've noticed how the world keeps referring to the universe kind of as if it were God. Um, they refer to the universe as being responsible for things really that God is responsible for. Uh, for, for example, um, there's a this uh, I don't know how you how to what the word I'm looking for is, but uh, there, there's this thing. I'll just say it at that, but that they call uh, universal reciprocity. I guess you'd say a law. And what does it mean when they say universal reciprocity? And, and notice universe is involved in that. <laughs> but basically, that means you do something good and it comes back to you. Or you do something bad that comes back to you. Of course, what is that? Well, that's God's law of sowing and reaping. Uh, but they're making the universe responsible for it. And then the Lord said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. What, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. And this thing goes on where you hear people talking about how uh, you say, well, I think somebody's trying to tell me something or God's trying to tell me something. But now they're saying, well, the universe is trying to tell me something or the yeah. universe is doing this for me. Uh, I did a Google search on the words, the universe is telling me. And here's, here's the results on the first page. Um, first result, how to recognize signs from the universe. Hmm. Uh, next, signs from the universe. What is the universe trying to tell you? Uh, next, seven signs the universe is trying to tell you something. <laughs> then nine signs from the universe that are trying to tell you something. Eleven major warning signs from the universe. Are you receiving a sign? Ten ways to know when the universe is dot, dot, dot. Seven signs the universe is trying to set you up with the one. Six signs from the universe you should never ignore. How to recognize when the universe is giving you a sign. What is the universe trying to tell you? And they... And so they, they, and I haven't even been bothered going to the second page, but (laughs) they're going on and on. They, they think that, uh, this universe is out there trying to impart some information to them. Uh, and, and really God's out there trying to impart some information. I like in Proverbs where it says, doth not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice. And the Lord is trying to speak to people. They just need ears to hear. Now, um, I'm going to go a little, take a a little bit uh, longer. It won't take too long, but. Since um, our other two guys aren't here, I uh, subsequent to my telling our church this, uh, matter of fact, just within the last few days, I came across an article that rehashed a theory by Stephen Hawking. Uh, the article is on quantamagazine.org. I'm just going to read you the first four paragraphs of the article. And um, Brother Joel mentioned uh, Hawking a couple times or so. And uh, 
Here's what this here's what the article says. It says in 1981, many of the world's leading cosmologists gathered at the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, a vestige of the coupled lineages of science and theology located in an elegant villa in the gardens of the Vatican. <clears throat> Stephen Hawking chose the august setting to present what he would later regard as his most important idea, a proposal about how the universe could have arisen from nothing. Before Hawking's talk, all cosmological origin stories, scientific or theological, had invited the rejoinder, what happened before that? The Big Bang Theory, for instance, pioneered 50 years before Hawking's lecture by the Belgian scientist and Catholic priest uh, Georges Lamotre. I'm not sure on the pronunciation of that, but uh, who later served as president of the Vatican's Academy of Sciences. And um, this uh, says, he goes on to say, this uh, Big Bang Theory, what it does, rewinds the, uh, expans- the ex- expansion of the universe back to a hot, dense bundle of energy. <clears throat> but where did the initial energy come from? So these are the questions they're dealing with, which, uh, if I could just interject here, when you're talking about that guy who, his uh, theory is that, you know, our life came from alien life, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. So my question would be, well, where did the alien come from? Yeah. You know, where did the alien get his life? And that's kind of what happens. All right. Where did the initial energy for the Big Bang come from? So, and that's, that's where we go. But the Big Bang theory, he says, had other problems. Uh, the article says physicists understood that an expanding bundle, bundle of energy would grow into a crumpled mess rather than the huge smooth cosmos that modern astronomers observe. Uh, in 1980, the year before Hawking's talk, the cosmo, cosmo, cosmologist Alan Guth, I think you mentioned him as well. Yep. Uh, realized that the Big Bang's problems could be fixed with an add-on, an initial exponential growth spurt known as cosmic inflation, which was the context, I think, in which you mentioned. And uh, it says, which would have rendered the universe huge, smooth, and flat before gravity had a chance to wreck it. Inflation quickly became the leading theory of our cosmic origins, yet the the, the issue of initial conditions remained. So there's still problems. What was the source of the minuscule patch that allegedly ballooned into our cosmos and of the potential energy that inflated it. <clears throat> so, so Hawking's actually uh, going to address this because it is really, I mean, if I'm dealing with an atheist and they're, you know, all atheists are evolutionists. Uh, they have to be. Uh, not all evolutionists are atheists, but, but all atheists are evolutionists because that's their only explanation for how things got here. And when they talk about the Big Bang, I, I always go back, well, what happened? Where did the Big Bang come from? Or you just take it back further because it's, there's got to be a starting point. And so they, as far as that goes, they, they usually just, you know, blow their mind and start yelling at me or something about that point. (laughs) (laughs) But Hawking's going to address it. And he did this, like he said, he's dead. And he did this back in, um, early eighties, if not before when, but, but this is when he comes out. So here's what he says. Here's what the last part of the article I read you. (laughs) Hawking and his brilliance saw a way to end the interminable groping backward in time. He proposed that there's no end or beginning at all. According to the record of the Vatican Conference, the Cambridge physicist, then 39 and still able to speak with his own voice, told the crowd, there ought to be something very special about the boundary conditions of the universe and what can be more special than the condition that there is no boundary. Mm-hmm. So Hawking's, his, his explanation was that the universe is eternal. It had no, no beginning. It had no end. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? He was so close mm-hmm. and yet yeah. so far, because he came that close to discovering God, but he mistook God for the universe. 
I mean, the universe wasn't here forever, but God was. There, mm-hmm. This is this is where it has to come from. The, God's the eternal one, and, and he inhabits eternity. The scripture says, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Amen. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, 27. Isaiah 57, 15. For those say the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. There is a being out there that, that always was, and this is where you know the human mind breaks down. They can't explain it. That's because we're dealing with some some being that is so far superior to us that we can't even uh, explain something that to him would be be simple. Like, where did he come from? He didn't. He always was there. Uh, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Psalm 90 and verse number two. And then Psalm 93, too, thy, thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. That's God that was there always. And, uh, and he, as uh, Joel pointed out repeatedly and very simply, he created the heaven and the earth. Um, Hebrews 11.3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which, were seen, which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God took this stuff and, and made it from things that, that we couldn't even see. And, and we believe that by faith, certainly. Where do we get that faith? Mm-hmm. Well, so faith, then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And as we read what we read in the word of God, and we observe what we observe, as uh, Psalm 19 that you mentioned, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. It is the logical conclusion uh, for us. We living beings were created by the living God. That's where the life came from. So yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really glad you added that on there because um, that is one of those things that comes up Every time when you say, oh, you, know, you say everything came from nothing, um, that's impossible in a naturalist world. And then un- inevitably it comes up, well, <clears throat> you believe that God created everything from nothing. So where did God come from? And, and I, didn't, uh, I did not address that here. So thanks for bringing that up. Amen. Amen. Well, I know it was lengthy. I think we're coming up on two hours worth, but it was good stuff. And again, yes, easy easy to pause and easy to go back to. And you know, it's good reference material too for. Oh, for, oh I think Eric, so. let me yeah. Let me add. Um, I meant to say this at the outset. Um, I'll give you the, these notes. So every quote is referenced. Awesome. And and I think this is important. You know, just to just to be clear with people, this is not made-up stuff, or they can always check context and look at it themselves. If you have any of those photos, I could put those up, too. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'll send people could see those. Photos. So it's good. I mean, you know, a lot of times I know in the past when, you know, folks find out that I'm a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, and then invariably it might come around that, you know, oh, so you believe that God, you know, created everything. <laughs> they kind of roll their eyes and, and, you know, oh, man, that takes a lot of faith. I think just listening to this tonight, that's way more faith than, than than I have, you know. So good stuff. And again, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joel. Amen. All right. Well, Lord willing, we'll see you again soon. And we'll be looking forward to part three. Take care, guys. Evermore, when we meet on that shore, free from all care, rising up Telling this world goodbye Homeward we then will fly Glory to share Jesus is coming soon Morning or night or noon
light shall rise, righteous meet in the skies. Go woodward, go to where no one dies, heavenward bound. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. Many will meet, Many will meet their doom. Trumpets will sound, will surely sound. All of the dead shall rise, righteous meet in the skies. Go Looks like the boy genius is trying to show me up. You're absolutely correct.